and welcome back to the Latecomers. I'm Amity. I'm Lemuel. And this week, we're doing a little mini and then a maxi. We're talking about Taxi Driver, which we already talked about. Well, I hope so. That <laughs> limits us to what we're talking about. So, before we talk about a movie we already talked about, how was your week? My week was exciting, although I think I overexerted myself. Yeah, it um, got hot for Sunday, two days here. Yes, it was 90 degrees where I was and... Lots of exercise in a great deal of heat, and I came back kind of exhausted and just laid in bed for a while. Yeah. Uh, how was your weekend? It was good. I um, full disclosure, uh, recording this a bit early, uh, but yeah, we had our we had our summer. I don't. I, the whole rest of the country has basically been on fire mm-hmm. for months. We had two hot days, and I'm like, I can't take. <laughs> So, sorry, everyone. I'm not used to it just now. I've been hotter places on hotter days. Of course. And um, the highest for me is 114. That's right, because you went to Arizona. Yes, but that was in California. Oh, the very hottest was in California. Were Um, you in the desert? No. It was near Murphy. Oh, like right in the, okay. Like due east. Almost straight over by the outside of the Stanislaus National National Forest by Angel's Camp. Yeah, it was really, really, really hot. And it was so hot that I don't think I could have survived without air conditioning. Interesting. I mean, yeah, heat kills, as we're finding out. (sighs) Yay, climate change. So let's talk about this movie. This movie is intense. This movie might be one of the more intense movies on this list in terms of The Watch. Uh I feel like, for me, next week's movie is going to be worse, but that's a me issue, I think. Mm. So this one, um, you know, we talked about a while ago, like five years ago, I think. And it's number... What number is it on the list? It is number 22... On the AFI's most thrilling list. And do you think that it earns that place? It certainly does, but it's a very slow kind of build-up. And then it, it you realize as you're watching it... Because there, there's a feeling, I imagine, when I'm watching this film, uh-huh. let me say it for me then, what not one feels, though. I felt watching this film <laughs> that there were so many details that felt extraneous just building up this character. Yeah. And they feel extraneous up until the last 15 minutes when you realize that everything that was told to you is told you for a reason. And it all becomes very frighteningly apparent about why these details are fed to you to explain this really outrageous thing that he winds up doing. Yeah, it feels like fragments of mirror, and then you see at the end the shattered mirror that it all came from. Like... Yes. It's, it's, it distills itself down in a, in a very interesting way. Um, he's not like an emo guy who's worried about the state of the world or something because he's read too much, uh, chemo or something. Yeah. He's actually desperately disturbed. And he's also like, here's, here's a concern. Mm-hmm. This sounds like it's going to, or this is going to sound like it's out of left field, but mm-hmm. there are all these studies that are coming out that young men are having less sex than mm. ever before, right? And lots of them are turning to the internet and there's that incel, the whole incel right. culture, right? And I feel like he's going to be a role model for them the way that, like, 
Scarface was on all of the posters when I was a kid right. or like in college, a movie I've never seen, but that was like, like this weird role model for boys. And right. I feel like this character is going to be maybe a role model for boys because it seems to me that his biggest sort of trait is not that he's like unbalanced. It's that he's like desperately lonely and doesn't know how to bridge that gap. He doesn't know how to socially connect. Right. He's on a date with Sybil Shepherd, who's his dream girl, and he takes her to a porn to theater. To a porn theater, yeah. Which is probably the and, real indication that there's something really wrong, excuse me, there's something really wrong with the way that he experiences the world. It it feels like, and you know, we mm. don't, I don't want to diagnose at right. all, but this feels like autism. This oh, yeah. feels like not because autistic people um, you know, are inherently like totally out of left field in terms of how they interact with people, but I understand the logic by which he got to this is a thing we could do on a date. Like right. I totally do understand that logic if you have never had the socialization of learning what dating is. Mm-hmm. Right? objectively, without any connotation whatsoever, that seems like a reasonable date. It's a movie. Right. We're here in a romantic capacity. (laughs) It's it's extreme. It also is one of the steps that leads to his final course of action. And this film is now at an age to where you can talk about that final course of action without necessarily calling a spoiler. Well, we are Um, spoiling anyway. We're going to go through the whole thing. In the end, he does stuff that is so horribly violent, but it's completely consistent with who he's been the entire right. time. Yeah, it's not a surprise. Right, and that's, that's what works. It's still shocking without being a surprise. And one of the things that I think I go on to say, you know, on the original uh, podcast that we did about this, is that Martin Scorsese really knows how to make violence look and feel violent on yeah. screen. Yeah, he does. And we did that when we did uh, when we were looking at Raging Bull, too. It doesn't feel like he's glorifying he's it. He's not or glorifying like, it. It's um, not deifying cool. these people. Right, right. exactly. It's he's just, like, this is rough. This right. is dirty. This is painful. Right. There's no pretense about you could get hit a bunch of times and it doesn't right. like, affect you. Meanwhile, like in a born identity situation, you're like, how many times have you been punched? Yeah. Because at some point, you have to act like you've been punched, and they just, a lot of, um, that's one of the reasons I like, like, the last John Wick movie. Uh-huh. He's tired. Yeah, he's so tired, he doesn't want to do this anymore. And I was like, right? Because mm-hmm. he's been basically going nonstop since the first movie, right? Yeah. Like, uh, and... And too many movies don't show that um, sort of weariness that can mm-hmm. happen and just cumulative pain yeah. that violence brings on, like physical violence brings on. Um, so, yeah, it's a thrill. Yes, it is. It's a different kind of thrill uh, than, you know, Lawrence of Arabia last week and Clockwork Orange next week, although it might be pretty close to Clockwork Orange, Orange next week. Does does it doesn't glorify violence, but the violence there is so stylized, over the top yeah. and stylized that it doesn't feel the same. This just feels like you're watching a street fight. Yeah, 
For sure. And you kind of are. Yeah. And then the fact that he is sort of lauded at the end mm-hmm. is interesting as well. Right, because, because it feels like... That's proving the point that you're just making. Here's a person who's very disturbed. Yeah. And who should never be a role model for anybody becoming a role model because he incidentally does something heroic. Right. Yeah. Not he's not there that to the rescue goal. This, right. this young woman. He's there because he's so disgusted by all this behavior that he feels it. This is his stand against it. He's going to make it stop. So, yeah, he's getting lauded for the thing that was accidentally what he achieved in his act of violence. Right. And I prefer this. I mean, it's a hard... Com- mm-hmm. It's not a, a hard comparison to make because they're both Martin, Martin Scorsese films, right? right? I prefer this performance, De Niro's performance in this. Right vastly to the performance in Raging Bull. Right. But also, I didn't care for Raging Bull. I don't want to watch Taxi Driver again. Mm-hmm. But, it's tough to say, I enjoyed the watch better, right. more. Like, I was frustrated at points in Raging Bull. Like, angry that I was having to watch it. I never felt that way in Taxi Driver. Mm-hmm. I was tense, and I was like, this is fucked up. Right. But I was never like, why, why is this filmmaker making me watch this? Yeah. I understood all of the pieces that he was doing. And this is pre-Raging Bull. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. Raging Bull is marked as a classic, but it's not as high on the list as this, although I would argue it is less thrilling than this. Mm-hmm. Um, but I vastly prefer De Niro in this and the direction of this. So, right, like, exactly. uh, you know, if I had to rank Scorsese films, which I couldn't do because I haven't seen most of them, uh, this is definitely going significantly higher than Raging Bull. Yeah. So, all right. So, here's our. I want to said almost said Raging Bull. Here's our Taxi Driver episode. Next week we're watching Clockwork Orange, and once again, please don't watch these movies back to back. No. That seems like Mind too you, much stress. We are going genius to genius, but we're also yeah troubled genius to troubled genius. G- yeah. Give yourself right. take, take some a grace. Break. <laughs> a dis- break. Disney film? An old one, maybe? Sit. Or watch a new one. Watch Moana. Or there something. you go. That's our recommendation That's this cleanser. week. <laughs> our recommendation this week is don't watch these. Uh, we had a roommate who taught me that, yes, she one of our dates early on was watching Lord of Illusions, the Clive Barker film, and immediately afterwards she watched The Aristocats. To just film. bring it just down. Like, yes, I don't want to go to sleep with just pictures from hell, from Lord of Illusions in my head. Meanwhile, I will watch Silence of the Lambs to go to sleep. But I've seen it a dozen right. or more times, so it's not shocking to me anymore. All right, we'll talk to you next time with Clockwork Orange. And here's Taxi Driver. Hello, and welcome back to The Late Comers. I'm Amity. I'm Lemuel. And we have just finished watching... Taxi Driver from 1976. Before we get to that, how was your week? My week actually was very busy. My dearest friend had a birthday. That's me! And we went out and celebrated uh, with another one of our friends with a really, really wonderful dinner. Oh, we did go to dinner. Well, actually, we had the night of her birthday, we got a dessert dinner, and then the night a dessert uh, dinner after her <laughs> makes it sound like birthday, monsters. We had a dinner dinner. So yes, it was a really busy fill a week filled with stuff to do. Going out, yes, and eating elsewhere. And then we it, it, typically on a person's birthday do all sorts of activities and things. We Not if it falls out. on a Wednesday and she's right. a grown up. 
He spread this out over several days that culminated in going to the Rosicrucian Egyptian Museum. If you think we're done celebrating my birthday, you are sorely mistaken. It's going sir. to go on until my birthday. That's not right. Which will be another few weeks. So, yeah. Um, like a Persian yes. emperor in the Bronze Age. And we recommend going to the Rose. If you are in the Bay Area, California Bay Area, not the Puget Sound area or whatever other bays, there is a museum in San Jose that is, uh, has been compiled by and is kept by the Rosicrucians. I don't know what they are. I think they're like the Knights Templar. It's very confusing. But it's the largest Egyptian or collection of Egyptian memorabilia. Yeah, artifacts is a better word. Um, in North America, yes, those things probably should be in Egypt before you ask. But these, a lot of these have been sort of confiscated from private collections. There's mummies. There's kitten mummies and bird mummies and baboon mummies and gazelle mummies and people mummies. But I was most impressed by the fake mummies. Also a fake mummies. And that's a fake baboon mummy. There's a fake baboon. It's very cool. They thought it was real and then National Geographic came and did uh, an x-ray, and it is not real. It is made out of a jar and a wooden head. It looks real. It's very convincing. <laughs> but there's all sorts of Egyptian artifacts. I think, for me, the, the loveliest part was the recreation of a tomb that you get to walk into. Yes. And uh, you get a sense of how really... Th- I grew up watching, you know, Curse of the Mummy or something on television when I was a kid, and it struck me that all... Ancient tombs, for some reason, have torches that have been burning there for hundreds of years. Tombs are very dark. Yeah. Very, very dark. The dead don't need light. And how these were constructed, you know, in utter darkness. Well, I mean, they they had light during construction. Well, light during construction, but the way that it was... The way that they would flood the chamber with enough light to actually paint these hieroglyphics on the wall is really startling. Very impressive. It makes you think about the ingenuity of ancient people, and they're better than us. Yes, like the we. It's I don't know that I I read somewhere, and I don't know how true it remains that we couldn't reconstruct the building of the pyramids with our current tools. Mm -hmm. Like whatever they did is lost to antiquity. Also, we don't have slaves. Right. So. Wax casting, Greek fire, building of things like Machu Picchu. Yes, those are all gone from us. We have no idea how it was done. And we can't recreate it, which is very strange, given that we have so many advances in technology. Right. I can put 200 numbers into my phone, but I nobody yep. knows how. You can't have a pyramid. Right. So maybe it's for the best. All right, so you want to get into the movie this week? Uh, yes, and we should warn people ahead of time that there will be lots of... There's a lot of profanity. There is much swearing in this, uh, many slurs of many kind kinds. Of slur. Yes, <laughs> I don't know that anyone escapes. Yes, there is all kinds of seediness. This is a pre-Giuliani New York City, right. so... Much prostitution. Porn theaters are like a plot point. There is extreme violence, as Mm -hmm. you warned me last episode. Um, I would say, though, that if you watch a rated R movie in the 2000s, 
it's not that shocking. And and we'll get into right. why when we get to it, um, why I say that and then why you might differ. This movie came out apparently on a Sunday. Uh, it was released the 8th of February, 1976, which fell on a Sunday. So I don't understand how movies worked before now. <laughs> now. There's something, the reason why I wanted to introduce this as a film of latecomers was because I have a very personal kind of relationship with this film, even though I did not see it. And that was the day in elementary school that we were all pulled into the library by very solemn and frightened teachers to, and were told that Ronald Reagan had been shot. Oh, okay. That was in 1982? Uh, let's see. The assassination attempt was in 1981. 81. Oh, and, so he was a fresh president. Right. We were pulled in. I remember it, it was a really kind of... I, I know that we always go on about how different things used to be. There was a game on local television here where there was a, 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 the probably one of the earliest CGI-type figures ever, animated figures, who led you through a game where... You as a kid, would they would call you on the phone, and you'd shout to the phone the word POW, and there was a like a shooter game that would shoot at these oh, sort of space invaders things. It was really early on. This is 1981. And this is like a dialing for dollars thing right, where dial- they would the really call you. KTV, the same station that did dialing for dollars, you know, you'd submit your name, they would call you, and kids would answer the phone, and, you know, it was like space invaders. Something would be flying overhead, and you'd yell POW, and the, the, I think the character's name was Barney. It's a little animated blob, because it wasn't very sophisticated right. back then. And I'll never forget that day because the animated character called off all shooting games for the day and lectured the kids on some quote-unquote sicko who tried to shoot the president. Wow, interesting. It had an impact that, like, even as a kid you felt. Right. And especially when they took us into the library to speak to us about what happened, it was really weird because as a kid you sensed something was really wrong. Right. Because the adults were supposed to be responsible and taking care of you. And they all looked really And they frightened. all looked freaked out, right. Um, and that's because some of them had had a similar experience with watching Dr. King and Malcolm X. And, and JFK. And the Kennedys. Yeah. Going oh, under. both so of the Kennedys, right. They thought this was another wave of assassinations. It drew up things for them. So it was really kind of... Uh, that was the att- attempt to assassinate was uh, John Hinckley Jr. Right. And his excuse was... He was obsessing over Jodie Foster as a character in Taxi Driver. And the same way that Travis Bickle is trying to get Sybil Shepard's character... Betsy. Her, Betsy's attention by doing something as drastic as killing a presidential candidate. This guy followed this as a kind of a... Is that what he's trying to do? It was unclear to me. But he's making the attempt, and so he took this as a literal way of rescuing Jodie Foster. He'd been following her at that point. And she, oh, right. She, he was like a legit stalker oh, yes, of Jodie was. Foster in real life. That's right. And um, and for some reason, he just developed this obsession with her and thought that this was... I don't know if he felt this was ironic, that he was going to carry out... What, I don't think that irony comes into play. Into, right. into I don't think that something as subtle as irony mm-hmm. comes into play in a person who is deluded to the point of thinking... I am obsessed with this actress, and what I need to do to get her attention is shoot the president of the United States. I don't think irony enters into that. he warned her about it because he'd been writing poems and slipping them under her door Mm -hmm. at school. And this kind of had a huge impact on... Was she in college at that point? Uh, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, she was... uh, uh, had entered Yale University. Okay, so she was a freshman. So she had... uh, Yeah, and he was writing notes and slipping them under her door, telling her that he was going to kill the president. And then he made the attempt. So for years, this film, the title of this film was stuck in my head. 
because it was everywhere. Right. That this was the relationship between... Like, you know, it's like um, the Charles Manson helter-skelter right. thing. Which the or Beatles are horrified by this. Catcher on the Rye gets right. attached to many of these same types right. of figures. So, yeah, it's, it, it was, uh, so for years I'd heard about the film as a kid growing up, but I thought it was some sort of horrible film that drove people to insanity or something. Um, as it turns out, that's not the case. It's just the record of a very, very disturbed individual. Right. Yeah. So you want to get into the plot? Yes. Oh, the uh, So Travis Bickle is a 26-year-old honorably discharged U.S. Marine. He is played by Robert De Niro. Yes. Who is fresh off of a Academy Award win for our last film, The Godfather mm-hmm. 2. Nope. Two films ago. It was two ago. Check out that episode. I knew his character name was Travis Bickle, but also did not think that his character name was actually Travis Bickle. Like, it's a name that I've heard like, culturally, mm-hmm. and I always thought it was like a made-up, like like a nickname or mm-hmm. something, because it seems like I've never heard that name, Bickle specifically. I've heard of Travis's, but Bickle was a name that I'd never heard before, and so I thought it was like a... Like a pseudonym or something that his character came up with. But nope, apparently not. That is his legit name. Yeah, and he has a terrible issue with insomnia. Yep. So his way of relieving this is by driving around through 42nd Street to having the porn theaters that are open all night. Yeah. Um, And it doesn't even seem like he has any kind of salacious connection to these porn theaters. He's just sitting there because they're open all night. Yeah. He has nothing else to do. And that is a different, like, culturally, such a bizarre thing to me that you would go to a theater, order snacks, and then watch porn with other members of the public. Although, I feel the same way about people who go to see the Fifty Shades of Grey movies in the theaters. Mm -hmm. Like, these are movies that you watch at home in shame. (laughs) <laughs> what is wrong with you people? Yeah, he goes, he orders uh, snacks. Right. The uh, There's a scene where he's trying to get the concession woman to tell him her name. Right. In that very, hey, I'm just trying to ask your name. I'm just, I'm just curious about what your name is. And she won't give him his name. That woman was De Niro's real life girlfriend. No, oh, really? Yep. <laughs> yeah, like that. <laughs> So he drives around porn theater, or he inhabits porn theaters. He keeps a journal, which he talks to himself in aphorisms. Although he, I didn't catch the aphorisms. Um, you're only as healthy as you feel. You're going, you know, he's constantly yeah, doing this. Yeah, but it this. feels cause, so. There's a voiceover from uh-huh. almost from John. Yeah, you in felt this. the the um, the voiceover. Damn it, or would make it or alienate it with modern audiences. Yeah, I feel like today uh-huh. the note would be, can we do this without voiceover? Right. I don't know that you could do it without voiceover because so much of his brokenness is translated in those passages. Uh-huh. But as soon as they started, I was like, he sounds like a fanatic and this sounds like a manifesto. And exactly. I was right. I mean, that's what it ends up very much being like it, it they felt like the writings of the unabomber or something like right. that where he was like talking about how the city was populated with scum and filth and he had sort of religious intonations without actual religion mm, right uh, so I wouldn't say that they were like, it was like anti-Christian or something like no, that no, no, remember keep in mind that both of the film the writer and the director are both devoutly Catholic 
I didn't um, know that about yeah. the writer. I knew that about the director. So they're part of that great tradition of Catholic, well, Catholic writers, writers who are Catholic. Graham Greene used to argue about that all the time, that do these sort of really hard-boiled morality plays. But in going on about the um, the voiceover narration, mm-hmm. the original director of the film was Brian De Palma. Right. Who loves all the sort of trappings of traditional movie making. And he might be the reason why Bernard Herrmann, because De Palma was fascinated with Alfred Hitchcock, mm-hmm. is composing. And Alfred, uh, Herrmann, as we'll talk about later, composed most of Alfred Hitchcock's famous films. But the voiceover was also making connection to film noir. This kind of notion yes. of this sort of dark, horrible underside. This is a modern noir, the same way that, and there are later films like that. It's not a way that people, filmmakers nowadays, get into the character's head as much. Right. Well, I think because it got... Overused? Maybe? Overused yeah. and then used poorly, schmaltzy. Mm-hmm. And it was it became, a, I'm going to just tell and not show. Right. Whereas this in this case, we're talking about a man who is so lonely and cut off, mm-hmm. as we'll see later in his attempted interactions with people, mm-hmm. that there wasn't really a way to show how twisted his br- thought process was mm-hmm. because he wasn't sharing those thoughts with outside people. Mm-hmm. So you need a voiceover at yeah, that point. Yeah, I think, and you need it as extensively as it was here. Because mm-hmm. if not, there would just be lots of scenes of him doing random strange things right. that don't amount to much until they suddenly do. Yeah, but more, instead, mm-hmm. it's... You know, I'd say probably a solid hour of just him mm-hmm. driving around with no one, right. and then the voiceover. Well, he's having it's like half the film. It's very much like some of Scorsese's other work, like Mean Streets or Bringing Out the uh, No Paul Schrader's film. Was it Paul Schrader who did Bringing Out the Dead? Anyhow, I don't know. Um, about ambulance drivers, which is it's him relating to things around him. There's the kids who come out and throw eggs at his car, mm-hmm. or they're throwing trash at his car. There's the conversations he overhears the other cab drivers having. Right. But it's all about his inability to connect with anybody. Right. But um, going back to the film, so yes. he's writing this journal, he's keeping it to himself, and then one day he sees a young woman who's a campaign volunteer. Yes. It's and Betsy. Yes. Played by a stunningly beautiful Sybil Shepherd. She appeared like an angel out of this filthy mess. She is alone. They cannot touch her, which is a great line. And I, I think, guess. I mean, I guess that's an iconic thing you said. Mm-hmm. I have no. Well, the idea that it didn't reach me culturally because I. Well, I think also again, it's kind of one of the, the the issues with filmmaking, especially now, is it is very derivative. So the moments that really struck us have been repeated over and over yeah, again in a hundred different versions. She has some of my favorite scenes. Actually, my favorite. Scenes, I think, in this movie are the scenes between Sybil Shepherd and uh, Albert Brooks. But I think that just might be, like I Albert love Brooks. Albert Brooks. I now, just do. But to go on about Albert Brooks, because we haven't mentioned what he's doing. So Betsy, mm-hmm. she's a uh, campaign volunteer for uh, Senator Palantine. And she's there, and she, that's where Albert Brooks comes in. He's also a volunteer. Right. He might be supervising her. I'm not. Uh, it's clear. unclear. But he um, certainly is completely infatuated with her. He is. Every third word out of his mouth is how he loves her. It's real harassing. Like, Civil Shepherd is sexually harassed from moment one in the scene right. or in this film by every man there is. Right. She is leered at. 
She is catcalled. Her co-workers are constantly hitting on her. She takes it very well and she sort of just dusts it off. And then Travis, he, she sees him watching her at one point and then he gets chased off by Albert Brooks's character. Um, but then he comes back later mm-hmm. dressed, you know, appropriately and he says he wants to volunteer, but I'll only sign up with Sybil Shepherd. And then he proceeds to ask her out. This is, a scene, this is a scene where I asked you how you felt about how attractive Robert De Niro was. Because I think there are times when I'm watching a movie where I'm going, this attraction is solely here because it moves the plot along. My problem mm-hmm. with this and her agreeing to go out with him, we live in a different time now. Right. Right. But this woman, like I said, is beset upon by every person with a dick in a radius. <laughs> like... It's just like ding, 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 and then people are harassing her, constantly asking her out, telling her how beautiful she is, how they love her, this, that, and the other. I don't, first, I don't understand how she's single. I'm like, oh, she's definitely a lesbian, right? Like, not in the context right. of the film, obviously, but like, that's how she's not married. But I just didn't believe, I don't believe uh-huh. that you can go in off the street and, and and present yourself as having one set of motives, then completely show yourself to be lying about that set of motives and ask someone out and have them go, gee, okay. So, well, <laughs> this is what I saw in that film, or in that part of the film. First of all, I think that she's being hit on constantly, and it was just, I felt, the novelty of his approach. That Maybe. That might much. be it. Like... She and, and he's, she wasn't. He's she was a committing to a, a lunch in broad daylight That's in a true. diner full of people. So it wasn't like she was putting herself. It was at risk. yeah. It was coffee. I think in terms at her break. of how she's not interact or she's not. We don't know anything about her beyond the fact that we he don't. Sees her. Well, other than so she, she can, will say yes to a date, right? Because she will she say yes to a yes date. To that a doesn't date. mean she doesn't say yes to other dates. And it could simply be that she's just very focused because she seems to be a genuine believer in this political campaign. Also, she is she a, a volunteer or does she work? Um, and she could be a student. She could, we don't know anything about her except how Travis sees her. Yeah. Really. She's and so beautiful. Travis sees her as an angel, and that's literally how we see her. She is Sybil Shepherd, and she's beautiful. She's very funny. That is the thing right. that I did like about her character, was she's very witty. She's uh-huh. very sharp. She shuts these dudes down. Why? Because she doesn't have a choice. Because it's coming at her from yeah, all sides. She side. does it in like the most polite She does, and I don't way. know how she does it. And I think what yeah. drugs was she taking to keep her calm? Because I would have snapped fourteen times by ten a.m. But with Albert Brooks, for instance, uh, uh, Travis is telling her, "I can sense you don't have a connection with that guy, but I sense that we have a connection." And her response is, "Well, he's funny," and so obviously she's entertaining him because, or she entertains the notion they of that relationship because funny together. she's right. amused by it. But in Travis's case, it was, I suppose, the intensity, the novelty of his approach. Instead of being intimidated or frightened by her, because Albert Brooks' character obviously is too intimidated to do anything other than try to flirt with her in like the most... Well, I think he's probably made his intentions known, and she has said straight right. out, no, but we're it's not, it's not going to happen. That he, and so they right. just have this... This and banter. And that is my least uh, sort of objectionable thing, because I feel like they've worked together for a long time, and I do think that that's probably what happened. Right. He said, do you want to go out with me? They either did or didn't go out. And so they both know where mm-hmm. they stand in that relationship. So 
that is the nature the, of their the relationship is that now he and, is right. going to be overly fawning and she is going to shut right. him down and at every turn. It's hard to say in any way that you sympathize with any of them. She is very beautiful, though. And the way that she, that she again, is being presented to you through the cinematographer's eyes, through the director's eyes, is just that she is angelic. Right. So they go to coffee. Mm-hmm. And they have and this then, conversation. Uh, yes, they have a conversation, and then she agrees to go out with him to a movie. Now, what she does, there's a clue there as to why she's attracted to him. She refers to him as a walking com- contradiction. Yes. So she's intrigued by him. Because it reminds you, it reminds her of a character from a Chris Christopherson song, which really puts you in the frame of mind of when this was taking place. Right, notes. right. Chris Christopherson. So God then, at their dinner or at their date, mm-hmm. uh, Travis <laughs> determines that going to a porn film is an appropriate date. I thought he might be fucking with her, because she says, "Are we going to a, a you know, is this right. a is this a dirty film? Like that's not." I don't want to do that. And he's like, oh, no, I see couples in here all the time. How many times have you seen this film? And as soon as it gets graphic, Mm -hmm. she, like a boss, gets up and leaves. She doesn't say shit to him. She's just like, excuse me, excuse me. Well, I climb over the other people in this aisle. Ugh. <laughs> just, so uncomfortable. I don't, I don't even want to think about To get out <laughs> of this theater. It's one of those situations where I, I don't want to think about it too much. I don't want to think about why the floor is sticky. I don't and want to. And then it just becomes clear that he legitimately did not know that this is not an appropriate date place. He okay. just didn't know. Um, so now there's a little backstory there that might you might find interesting. And when you watched, like you've seen Boogie Nights, for instance. Right? I have never seen okay, Boogie, Boogie Nights. Boogie Nights is a film about the attempt for the porn industry to go legitimate. Okay. So there was a time when people were actually going to films like Deep Throat. You right. Know? No, I know that those had actual. So there was an attempt to break cinematic. So that might have been why she bothered to step in the theater in the first place. Um, but it certainly was not what she was prepared for, and she just gets up and walks no, out. No, she just gets up and walks but out. But it shows me more of the fact that, he, again, you know, like you said, he's clueless. He has no idea. He didn't understand that this wasn't an appropriate right. Why don't, venue. You know, and then she says something, which... Comes and out. he says, he apologizes, like legitimately apologizes. He says, I'm sorry. Right, but her, I, it, what was her line if, you know, I'd felt more... If you just said, come out and said you wanted to fuck me. Oh, this is about this is about as attractive right. as if you just said let's fuck. Right, which is interesting because again we've seen her angelic, we've seen her, and then this word comes out of her mouth, and you're like, oh. So Everybody that was an swears. interesting moment where he wakes up a little bit. Now he does try to reconcile this with her. Right, I think that that upset him. Yeah. Her use of the profanity, I think, was upsetting to him. Right, because that's not how angels talk. No. He attempts to reconcile with her. He attempts to get her attention. She doesn't want to talk to him. He sends her flowers. Flowers wind up back at his place, right. decorating the entire uh, apartment. Yeah, she just denies them. Mm-hmm. She she takes his call once. He apologizes. We only get his yeah um, side, which um, the some of the trivia I was reading said that that scene where he calls her from the lobby of the Ed Sullivan Theater. Because I don't think he has a phone. No, I don't think so. We haven't seen it. And tries to get her to go out with him again. Mm -hmm. He doesn't... He shoots down the hallway. Like, he doesn't show Mm -hmm. 
Travis on the phone yeah. because it's too pathetic to sort of look at. And he is, like, legitimately, he sounds sorry. Right. And, like, he would like another chance. And she's just like, I, uh, and no. this is again where those instances where you can feel sorry for him because I don't think he under, he doesn't know. You no, know? he doesn't. He's obviously operating on this different metric inside of his head. Right. And this is where I was like, did he have parents? Yeah, we don't find that out until later. But even when he writes to them, it's very. There's a scene that recalls that cowboy where his writing is so infantile. His writing is very infantile, but he writes much better than. Mm. Um, oh, I've forgotten his character's name. The cowboy. The midnight cowboy. <laughs> The titular Midnight Cowboy. Um, he writes Joe much Buck. better because... Joe Buck, that's right. Um, because he is constantly writing right. in these journals. Yeah. So it's childlike, but it's not stunted. Right. So after this happens, he uh, Travis shares his, uh, his feelings about not connecting and not belonging with Wizard, who's played by Peter Boyle. Peter Boyle rocking a very weird haircut. Well, I mean... <laughs> well, it's, it's, the hair is fled from him, and so he kind well, of on the top, like, and then on the sides, it is. He's compensating on the thick sides and luxurious and dark, and it is unsettling. And so he's a he's a cab driver who holds court, I guess, in an all night diner. Yeah, it's along a, with yeah. other cabbies. He's a very interesting character because although the racial and sexual epithets never leave his mouth. He's also at the same time kind of an enlightened creature. He is. It's he was. He, they will throw out the F word, the F Gaysler, mm. and then at the same time be like, "Oh, you should tell them to move to California because if they break up, then one, then they get alimony." Right. It's much and they're more like, "Oh, good for them." That. But meanwhile, they're using the F word, and it's like, "Well, what?" <laughs> yeah, it's very strange that they, they they're using another epithet for black people that you never heard oh, of. Oh, I never heard it. And they're using it in front of the one of the black drivers who's there who just seems to read his paper all the time and not connect like, the conversation. This is what it is. But he also is like the one intuitive guy who every time he sees uh, Travis Bickle calls him killer. That's right. Like he knows something. Or well, I think something. it might have to do with the fact that he's, he's, he's wearing the, um, the military jacket. Right. Or it could film. be the fact that he's a little bit, you know. Off. But, um, but he still looks, I mean, and you start seeing him, like, he's got, like, longer hair at the mm -hmm. beginning, and then he cuts it a little bit. So, like, as he's getting more and more off the rails, his hair gets shorter and shorter. Right. Uh, but when he's got the longer hair, like, he looks like a boy next door. Right. Like, he doesn't look dangerous. Well, he's also sort of smiling all the time. He's mm -hmm. pleasant. He, so, in this conversation, he asks Wizard, um... He's explained to him that he's really tired of the dirt and the grime and all the things that are disgusting him about the city. And he gets some sort of advice that would make sense to a um, a person who didn't have Travis's complications. But at the same time, it doesn't seem to, to go anywhere. He doesn't connect with that advice. Instead, he goes into this... What advice? I Wizard just said, I feel that way too. Don't worry no, about it. No, not just that he feels that way too, but also he tells him about a person becoming what they are and being separate from your job as a way of de Travis sort of distancing himself from what he's seeing in the city oh, okay. that's bothering him. You know, a man does a job, you know, and he also explains that's why he doesn't own a cab himself after all this time. Gotcha. I don't want to fall he's, into the position. I don't want to be a cab driver. Right. Like, I, like I don't, or I don't want to be cab driver, not right. even a cab driver, 
cab driver. So I don't want that to be my identity. He's warning him not to become a part of all the sort of violence and the hatred and racial animosity and things that he's seeing around him. He doesn't really take that. He goes into this period, Travis does, of self-purification of chin-ups. and Yeah, he loses a bunch of weight. Like, right. he gets down to, like, zero body fat. Right. Apparently, in the making of the film, De Niro lost 30 pounds, and he didn't have much to spare to start Well, with. before he starts doing the exercises, right. he gets... Uh, all of the guns? Right. He's, he goes from being like, mm-hmm. I don't need any guns, to all of the guns. Um, oh, because there's the scene with Martin Scorsese. I do believe that what his plan was, was I'm going to say the worst shit. So going forward, when I ask my actors to say terrible things, I can go, I'm on, on film saying terrible, terrible things as well. So Scorsese does like a cameo right. as a passenger in the cab who is scoping out an apartment where his wife is with not him, <laughs> <laughs> with a black man. Which seems to be really what gets him. <laughs> I well, you know. But and then he threatens to kill his wife and shoot her, and then goes with on a, a forty-four magnum specifically. A really horrible speech about what that does to a person's anatomy. But yeah, it's not good. Right. We don't know what happens to that guy because that just scene just ends. But right. then after that, uh, Travis goes to see what is his name, Easy Andy. <laughs> Which sounds like a character from Twin Peaks, actually. In, I bet that dude is like also a real estate broker because right. they meet in like an empty apartment that looks like it could be ready for a showing. Right. And he's got all of the guns, and Travis proceeds to buy and offers to all, all of the, the drugs guns. too. And then once he buys right. the the guns, he's like, "Oh, I've also got all of the because drugs." These two things go together. Right? Yeah, you like, have don't give him all of these guns. You want some oxy? <laughs> oxy wasn't a thing. <laughs> it he was. could get him some crystal meth. Oh, crystal meth. That was it. Yeah, it, it was, was cr- no, it wasn't. It was like, well, it was weed, right. but then it was like heroin, ecstasy, I think LSD. And then crystal meth was like the new hotness right. that he could get him. But yeah, so he, he buys the guns. And I also that scene with Martin Scorsese, that was a very kind of religious devil crouching in the dark, whispering in his Yeah, ear. he was sitting in the back seat. It was yeah, very just... creepy and very weird and really good. I love that scene because it's like, oh. Oh, and Martin Scorsese had a good goatee, man. Right. It was and like... His hair, his hair was just... It luxurious. Was it was great. So then... Travis, at this point, he, you know, he, he has one more encounter that seems to be random, and that is with Iris, who is a, a child prostitute, who um, he sees being belabored by her pimp. She, she gets into his cab and right. is like, Drive, yeah, I've got to get out of here, I've got to get out of here, and then she is extracted from his cab by her pimp, boyfriend. Boyfriend? Pimp. <laughs> 100% pimp. Um, and he gets a $20 tip, mm-hmm. which is like a huge amount of money in 1976. Right. Yeah. And so he sees her then occasionally out on the street. Yeah. But and he visits sport. He tries to set up uh, a date with her where they go to. Well, before that. Mm-hmm. Okay. So Travis has gotten himself ripped and is now sporting various holsters mm-hmm. and. Oh yeah, slides like he builds himself a gun slide. So if he like whips his arm, a gun just appears in his hand. He's got knives strapped to his boots. Like he's very armed. He's going into combat. 
No. And at one point, he's at the convenience store getting whatever he's getting, and um, the store is being robbed, or gets robbed. And at that point, Travis just shoots the dude in the like shoots him in the chest or something, kills him immediately. Right. And the and the store owner is like, he's like, he starts freaking out because he's like, I don't have a permit for this. Mm-hmm. And the store owner is like, I've got this. Don't worry about it. Right. Just go. He tries to buy whatever it was that he had in his hand. He's like, <laughs> just go. Yeah, I think Travis is in shock. I don't believe that he thought this would work. It just was a reaction now that he's armed to the teeth. And the store owner is so angry, he takes it out on the corpse by beating yes, the hell out of it. because you hear that this was like the fifth robbery right. of the year, and this dude is over. Yeah, so he's beating with a bat. He's right. beating this dead body. So he's covered there. Um, but <laughs> now he's a vigilante, right? right. Like, we've he's entered... He's a genuine vigilante. <laughs> and so that, I think that gives him the confidence to go forward with the next step, which is to try to, A, convince Iris to leave her pimp, who's played by Harvey Keitel. Right. Well, first, he's got to meet her, because he doesn't realize... I don't think he thinks that she should leave until he finds out her age. You know, I I don't know. I think that he... Because I believe that he probably has some vision of her as a younger version of Betsy. I think that's probably right. And they're even sort of styled a little bit alike, Mm -hmm. although Jodie Foster, with her sort of pink-rimmed eyes and Sort of sleepless. She looks like she's strung out, and yeah, and um, but she does resemble. She's made up to resemble a little bit this other woman. Yeah. So he sees it like as a way of rescuing her, and he does. He talks to her. She says to talk to Sport. Yes, Sport. As Sport is her pimp, Matthew, who is disgusting, the, the youngest Harvey Keitel that ever was, who is ripped. Mm-hmm. I was just like, where'd you get those guns, Harvey Keitel? <laughs> And, um, and long, flowing, lovely hair. And he is disgusting. He yeah, speaks yeah. about her in a disgusting manner. But, of course, he's selling her. So, right. uh, And he, uh, they end up renting uh, by the time, you know, by the moment, basically, hotel, $10 for a half an hour or whatever, right. 15 minutes. They get up to the room and she starts undressing. And he's like, but don't you remember me? You were in my cab. You, mm-hmm. were, you said you wanted to get away. And she's like, I must have been stoned. And he's like, no, 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 you really, you like, you were really scared and this, that, and the other. And then she's like, no, I don't have anywhere to go. So I must have been stoned. They protect me right. and give me somewhere to be. So if you want, let's, she kept saying, let's make it. I'm like, ugh, what a weird, ugh. And yeah, then, uh, she, oh, and then we find out she's 12 and a half. She's there are two half. scenes in the history of movies that gave me the same uncomfortable, fe- or that had the same uncomfortable feeling. This one and the beginning of Hard Candy. Oh where yeah, Ellen Page is a what thirteen year old? Something like that. Is Although to... I think that she's older than that. Right. She just always looks young. But in that scene, she's a like a preteen girl trying to as a, well. I won't spoil that film for you, but trying to seduce a pushing middle aged man. And right. It's just so just gross that and weird. And it's like, upsetting. Ugh. Yeah. So she's like, let's do this so that because I'm going to get in trouble. Right. Like, if we don't do this and I don't get the money, mm-hmm. I'm going to get in trouble. You're going to walk away and right. I'm going to get in trouble. So, but he doesn't do that. He seems to be disgusted by it. I don't know if physical contact is even his thing, though. I, it's, it's hard unclear, to tell. especially when you go to a porn theater. Right. To watch the movie. To watch the movie. <laughs> right. I don't know that your brain then connects this with physical, in actual physical, physical intimacy. But yeah. 
but when you look at the film, he doesn't at any point he doesn't get patted on the back. He doesn't touch other people. You know, the one time that he's touched is by Albert Brooks, who's trying to show him out the door, and he immediately gets into a stance like he's going to drop him. Right. And so I think that any kind of physicality beyond violence is not something necessarily that he knows how to deal with. Right. And given how young he must have been when he went into the Marine Corps, that might be the case. Right. But, um, but yeah, you know, the one thing that uh, Iris seems to be willing to do is to go away to a commune. And she agrees later to have breakfast with him. Yeah, she has breakfast with him. And uh, during which she's really spiking that coffee with so much sugar, you know, she needs to maintain yeah. some kind of high. Um, and I want to just she, stay awake. I'm yeah. sure that she's being worked at hours that yeah. a 12-year-old should be asleep, frankly. But she, uh, so he, it, it's like he feels like he's beginning to appeal and get across to her. He's like, you should be in school. And mm. it, nothing that he's saying is like untoward. It's not right. sexual in any way. But he's like, you're a kid. You should be in school with your parents. And she's like, they hate me. And that's why I'm here. And you don't get it. That scene, I guess, that scene is really good. Like, mm-hmm. she's very good in it. Yeah. Because she, we were talking about it when, when we were watching it. Jodie Foster, I think, has always sounded like an adult. Like, I'm pretty sure her first words had something to do with taxes. Give like me a cigarette. No. She's, I don't think it was, I don't think she's ever been a she's, smoker. She's just been that kind of She is very right. poised and together, but then her laugh is that of a, just a child. Right. And so when she laughs in the scene, it's just like heartbreaking because you're just like, oh, she's a baby. Right. <laughs> like, she's, save her. Um, and then he goes home. He, writes a letter right. to Iris, uh, leaving her the money that he... And he makes good money. That's the other thing. is He's pulling in $300, $350 a week, which well, is a lot of he's money. he's willing to go anywhere. There are cab drivers who aren't willing to go to Harlem. There are That's cab drivers right. who aren't willing to... And so he's, you know, he hates everybody. He has no distinctions yeah, he, about right. that. So, exactly. It's not like he hates blacks anymore than he hates the Cubans or the Chinese or the Puerto Ricans. He just hates everybody. Yeah. So he'll go into any neighborhood and he'll just raking in the cash and he has nothing to spend it on. He tells yeah. you that at one point. And there was a, there's, this is the second time that he's gone to a rally for Charles Palantine. Now this dude is running for the presidency, mm-hmm. but apparently only running in New York City because he is always in New York no, City. Well, no, there, there's a discussion because at one point Palantine is in his cab. That's right. And they're discussing going to California. That's true. He seems to only have the one speech. He must be like the senator of New York, right. which is why he's pushing so right. hard there. But yeah, he does He isn't, He does speak with Travis, and Travis is talking about how you've got to clean up the filth of New York, and they're like, okay, <laughs> that's great. Get out the boat. Um, and let's get the fuck out of this car. And then he goes to another uh, rally where he, like, sidles up to a giant Secret Service officer. <laughs> that dude seemed to be about six seven, um, And, like, stands and mimics his pose next to him. And then, you know, ask him about how do you have to, how you get to be in the Secret Service. And the Secret Service thinks he's slick and he's like, why don't you give me your name and address and we'll send you all the information. And But Travis is slicker and gives him a bullshit address with a six-digit zip code. Yeah, well, he's not slick enough to actually know, <laughs> nope. that, you know to think this out. But well. he gives a false name and address in uh, Jersey. Uh, but then 
he goes to another rally after he's written this letter to Iris, which is basically, I'm dead now, but you should go home. And he's going to assassinate Palantine. But he has shaved his head into a mohawk, and he has previously alerted the Secret Service to the fact that he is a crazy person. And so they see him, and they chase him off, and he does not get anywhere near his target. Now, this is the only other time, well, not the only other time, this is another scene where we see Betsy, too. Yeah, she's there. She's, she's there. she's like sitting on the stage. On, on the actual stage. On so the she, dais, yeah. Which is what makes you, made, gave me the impression she was a real true believer. She's somebody who's there for the cause, and I don't know if she would put up with other nonsense from, you know, her co-workers or whatever else. She might be very dedicated towards this politically. Right. Um, but and I like that we never find out if he's a Democrat or a Republican right. because she asks him, "What do you think? What do you think of his stat stance on welfare?" And, mm-hmm. and he's like, "Well, I don't, I don't know what it's what it is, but I'm sure it's a very good stance." Right. And then um, you know when they're talking in the car, he's like, "Well, what would you like to see? What change would you like to see?" And he says. I want to you should clean up the filth in the streets of New York, which the president isn't really. Uh, uh, that's not his I, job. I'm not sure exactly. Right. <laughs> so, uh, but so we never find out what this dude's stance on anything is. Oh, except that we are America. <laughs> we are America. You sent you us buttons that have the "we" underlined, and that means we are America. But we want to say. We are America with the R underlined. So that's what I know about his whole deal. I, I just find it really funny that, you know, he really doesn't say anything. You know? it's, yeah, uh, no, he doesn't. Very so realistic. Yeah, oh, very good. So having failed in his plan to, to kill the, um, the candidate, president, candidate yes. he winds up going for his secondary plan, which is to rescue Iris. And then ensues he the probably one of the more violent and realistic gunfights. Yeah, it's in a film. Uh, this is not a western. I think there was a conscious jump away from the western shootouts where somebody falls decorously behind a table. Right. No. This is really graphic. So yeah, he goes up to sports stands in a doorway down the street from the hotel where all of his uh, people are. Oh, there was a very interesting scene. Prior to this, with Iris and Sport, with Iris oh, and yes, Matthew. Yes, I'm sorry. That where one of the few scenes of the film that don't involve Travis. No, it's there's only two. Uh-huh. Um, and it's the one with uh, Albert Brooks and Sybil Shepherd at uh-huh. the beginning, and the one here with these two, where tra- uh, Matthew or Sport mm-hmm. is um, basically re-upping his pimping qualifications. I love you, baby. I'd love yeah. to spend more time with you. I like that you don't like what you're doing because it means that you want to be with me instead and all that bullshit. And the fact that he's saying and this to a child. to a child. Oh, God. And yeah, then they it's... dance. And he says, like, you're so beautiful and feeling you so close to me makes me feel like the whole thing is like skin no, growing. Now, mind you, what's, what... Mm, it, there's a the earlier scene he's describing all these really revolting things that De Niro can do to her because she's twelve and a half on years her old. and in her and ugh. and then the scene with the actual twelve and a half year old he's being ridiculously romantic he's appealing. of course he is so, because that's how you get the twelve year old to stay and do what right. you want her to do but I mean that was. Unfortunately, it's also how you get the twenty eight year old to mm-hmm. stay and do what you want her to do. Well, it's like, you know, it's um. 
abusive behavior 101, what, right. what he's doing. And, but, and that scene was necessary, I think, for what happens afterwards, because you really, mm-hmm. you, you don't want, I get, the director does not want you in any way, shape, or form on the sports side. No. Um, and what winds up happening is so brutal, not just to sport, but to the owner of the hotel that, that runs the hotel. With well, the I think it's his manager. I think right. that they all are sort of in together. Yeah, right, so, they're in together, yeah. So um, Travis goes up to sport standing in the street, mm-hmm. and he doesn't recognize him. Because the mohawk. Because the mohawk. Uh, yeah, that did it. It's like Clark Kent's glasses. Travis, I think, does he ask about Iris? I think he asks about Iris, and he says something flip and right. gross about her. And then, like, with no, like, there was no warning. That was the thing about the violence in this movie. It was, like, all at once and all right. of a sudden. Uh, like, when he shot the guy in the convenience store, I was like, right. what the fuck? <laughs> what the hell just happened? He shoots him in the gut and walks away. Just like, right. okay. And then he goes into the hotel, and he fires at the dude that collects the money for the room, mm-hmm. the manager, a, a bouncer. He kill. He shoots at a bouncer, mm-hmm. he, but he shoots that dude, the manager, in right. the hand and, like, blows off half of his fingers. Right. Which is a weird callback to a joke that Sybil Shepard and Albert Brooks were doing right. about how would you strike a match if you had only your thumb and your baby f- and your pinky finger right, on exactly. one hand just, a, and then all of a sudden this really, dude has like no yeah. fingers on his hand so be prepared to see that because that the first time I saw it really surprised me because again coming from there are coming from a different way of seeing yeah. this kind of violence on television all the time no this is what a person looks like when they get shot yeah, and, and there's then and there's blood and there's yeah yeah and so and then he's fighting his way up to the room that he had been in with mm-hmm. Iris previously, and then Sport comes in behind him because he shot him in the gut. He didn't mm-hmm. kill him, so he's firing, and Travis gets shot in the neck. And I was like, "What? I did not see that coming." But he keeps going like the Terminator. Well, I don't know if it was are, like a super small caliber bullet or what. also really adrenalized. Yeah, that's true. Because the doorman keeps falling up the stairs, threatening to kill him, even though he's obviously bleeding to death. Right. You know, there are yeah, just people are shot in very haphazard ways right. and continue to move forward. Um, and he breaks down the doorway door. Mm-hmm. And he ends up killing the man that's in the room with Iris. Mm-hmm. And maybe another man, like and another... The, the doorman comes over, tries to... He, he, I think he stabs him. I, I, they're I, stabbing, they're shooting. There's a lot. It's he, a lot. he finally kills Harvey Keitel's character. And then yeah, and Harvey Keitel's character comes in at the very end, mm-hmm. and Iris is screaming, don't kill him, don't kill him. Mm-hmm. Of course, Travis kills him. And then collapses. And Using then the slide gun, right? The, yeah, yes. He, he yes. utilizes nearly every weapon in his arsenal it's at this point. It's bananas. And then the cops come. The three police officers come and do not shoot Travis. Well, he, at this point, he's, he's at the very end, is trying to commit suicide. Yeah, he, he tries to he tries to shoot himself. He's out of bullets, bullets right. and he's out of bullets and apparently all of his firearms. But he's also bleeding out, so he lacks the ability to do more than just sit there. Right. So he sits there and he is covered in blood, and he raises his fingers in a gun right. um, shape, an L shape, up to his temple, and then it's like. Psh, psh. She does not make him look crazy at all. <laughs> and then. We see newspaper clippings 
and we hear like news or radio mm-hmm. news about uh, the hero cabbie right. who is healing nicely and will be released from the hospital. And that that point, I looked at you and I said, oh, this movie is about white privilege. <laughs> um, and we get a voiceover mm-hmm. of Iris's dad writing a thank you letter. Right. She's here. She's doing well in school. We couldn't, we came up to visit you, but you were still in a coma. We couldn't, we, we can't come visit again because we don't have the means, but we would love to, you know, you're our hero. Thank you so much. Thank you for everything. And all of these, you know, hero, cabbie, hero, cabbie, hero, cabbie, uh, clippings. And then Travis goes back to work. And he winds up supposedly, and this is something I believe at this point he's a completely unreliable narrator. Right. So, and then, yeah, he picks up Betsy Uh. or Betsy gets in his cab from wherever and she says, I saw everything about you on the news and and all that. She doesn't, like, dote on him, mm-hmm. but she is a little bit gushy. She's appreciative of him now. And he doesn't say, he doesn't say anything to her. Yeah. Um, and then when they get to wherever she needed to go, she gets out, and he still hasn't said anything. And then she's, like, sort of crestfallen, and she's mm-hmm. like, how much is it? And he says something like, have a good day or something like that, and, and then, then he, just drives away. Right. Um, and then he gets like agitated because he sees like something in the rearview mirror, that and we then don't see. we don't see it. Um, then is, it just goes into the credits with a lot of overlapping. I I did not like the end credits; they were unsettling to me. Just overlapping imagery of the. Glass, like reflections right. of signage and things like that. So everything was off center and like backwards and off kilter and uh, like Which I said, I overlapping. I think that actually was a deliberate attempt to show you. I think that's how right. Disoriented he was. I, I think that that's absolutely right, and it was unsettling right. to me. I was like, I don't like these. I don't want to watch this anymore. Uh, and that's that's a wrap, yo. So how did you feel about it? You know, okay. <laughs> I mean, it's like... You, dun, dun, dun. I, didn't, I loved this movie. It was wonderful. No, I have, no okay. So, De Niro is very good. Mm. The direction is really, really good and really interesting. And mm. you said something um, that I think we should talk about, which is the lighting changes significantly on, this, on the last scene with the violence. Mm. And you said, you notice it got darker. The only way they could keep the R rating was right. if they made it less... Saturated. Saturated the right. color because it was too bloody. Right. And I wonder if they turned up the saturation again on that last scene where he's his hand is covered in blood and he puts it to his head and that seems to have right, the proper color. The right color back to it. I think my entire problem with the film can be summed up by the Martin Scorsese <laughs> quote to Roger Ebert. Who loves this movie or loves this movie rather. Really. Oh, I'll miss you. I do miss you. Um, let me find it here. I'm looking at the the uh, trivia in IMDb. I do like that the you talking to me thing is ad-libbed. Right. I think all, I, it's funny how, oh, like, in oh, those famous it. lines, uh, how many of them were ad-libbed? I think that 
a number of the conversations between the characters were ad-libbed as well. That this was a... That might be right. right. But I guess in the thing, the, the script just says, Travis looks in the mirror. <laughs> and I don't know if they were just like, bored. That's boring. In an interview with Roger Ebert upon the film's release, Martin Scorsese called it, quote, my feminist film because it takes Macho to its logical conclusion. The better man is the man who can kill you. This shows that kind of thinking shows the kinds of problems some men have bouncing back and forth between their perception of women as goddesses and whores. Okay, that's... that. Everything after this is my feminist film, mm-hmm. I'm on board with. Yes, it looks at toxic masculinity, which is a phrase that he did not know in 1976. Yeah. That's fine. And the goddess whore idealization mm-hmm. um, that he has with women, right? They're all perfectly pure or ruined. Those are your options, I guess. Um, even though he doesn't have a problem with the sex act, like, the sex act does not ruin you, right? right? Because otherwise Iris would be ruined. She's not new. And he heard all of the things that people paid to do to her. Mm. Uh, That's not what feminism is, though, dude. Like, feminism is not how men interact with women. Like, that's not... Well, this is just, again, uh, (laughs) make concessions for the limited understanding that he probably had of this then. I sure he would not make the same statement now. Yeah. He's a brilliant man. So Um, that, I I liked the movie, but, uh yeah, the women, like, it's rough as a woman to watch this movie. Now, it's a product of its time, though, and I think That's fair. In terms of the fact, I think the women are actually given, and this again is not, you know, me arguing on the film's behalf. Right. But that it was a part of a a whole culture. Right. And that in no way are the women made to be real victims in this. Mm. Even Jodie Foster, to a certain extent, is participating in what she's doing. Right. Well, Um, to any, as the extent that a 12 year old can be. To the extent that a 12 year old can. She's. She is. That. This is a decision that she's made. That's fair. And Betsy is not at any point is not a, a shrinking violet. No, and she, I don't. And I'm not saying mm-hmm. that they should have been treated differently. Right. I think that they are treated appropriately for the film and for what the film is doing right. about this man and his problems, including his problems with women. I'm saying, as a woman. This film is hard to watch. Yes, I understand. And so that's why I don't know that I want to say I liked the movie because mm-hmm. it was it was like I said it was beautiful to watch. The cinematography was beautiful. I liked the music a whole bunch. The performances were really good. I can check it off a list. I think there are two more two stronger female characters than you got in the either of the two Godfather movies. That's fair. By having yes. only two female characters, yes, you did. You had them and they were thought out. Yeah. They weren't one note. No. They uh, they had their own complications. And it was interesting to see that that ending with Jodie Foster, whose parents seemed to really love her. Mm-hmm. Like, so I don't know why they would send a letter right. stating that they wanted their daughter back and they were so grateful to have her back if they if she was a drain on them. Right. Which is what my Thoughts were after she was talking about how her parents hated her, and how, that's why she's she left. I mean, yes, the two women that we see are strong 
a kind of awesome characters. Well written characters, rounded characters. Bad shit is happening to them yeah. oh, all of the time. And that is hard to like I know. it's and just a lot to about watch. The, a weight of bad shit on people. Yeah. You know, and that's um I think it's extremely interesting that we know literally nothing about this character. Mm-hmm. He's twenty six. He was in the Marines, probably drafted in v- into Vietnam. Mm-hmm. We don't know any. Oh, what? Are, he was writing to his parents. He writes a like. But he's a, writing a fictional life for himself, so they'll know that he's okay. Right. But it doesn't give you many clues as to exactly what it. We, all that we know is that at some point he just cut and took off, and yeah, they have no idea where he is. They don't. Oh, that's right. I can't tell you where I'm living, but right. I have a a girlfriend named Betsy. Right. He does say that. And he's that he's working and he's got a good job and he's making good money, but he's not saying it's a it. He's telling them as much truth as he told the Secret Service agent when right. asked about his identity. But we don't know. And this person either had zero home training, mm-hmm. right, as to not understand what a feature film versus a porn film and wh- what's appropriate where. Or was unable to absorb that information typically. So is he neuro, uh, you know, neuroatypical? Is he on a on, on the spectrum somewhere? Is he suffering from post traumatic stress. It, that's the other thing. Was he fine up until he went into the military, and right. then after the military, no. Uh, the insomnia. I mean, twenty six. He could be becoming schizophrenic. That's right. a prime age. Because for that. yeah, I believe that. But me, they, we never get the a final diagnosis. Scene Betsy, I'm very suspicious whether or not Betsy was ever, ever even in the car. Yeah, you I, believe I, that that I, was at this point. It could have been a complete break on his part, and we don't know exactly what it is, or how much of this is is, is now happening. We know that he did go on this massacre, right? Because there's external evidence of that. Yes. But whatever else has happened, I don't. But know. because everybody he killed mm-hmm. was a criminal, right? Right, we've got the pimp, mm-hmm. we've got the John of a twelve-year-old prostitute, right. we've got the managers, the bouncers, right. you know, the people that are holding, presumably holding this woman or this girl. Right. So everybody, because everyone he killed was, I mean, he's the he's pre Dexter, Dexter. I only kill bad people. Fortunately. He did only kill bad people because the good people stopped him from killing the candidate. Now, in, when we go back to that scene about the violence, I'm again curious about your opinion when you're expressing it to people nowadays, how it won't be as violent to them or it won't be as... I don't think you would be... I, I was shocked by the suddenness of uh-huh. the violence. There was no ramping up to it. It just happened. There mm-hmm. were... All of a sudden, people are being shot immediately right now. But... The scope of the violence, I mean, if you watch HBO, it's not more violent than anything that you've seen. You particularly see a difference between the practical effects being used versus the significant amount of CGI. You know, this is Dick Smith again, (laughs) who's responsible for killing most of the Corleone family at this point and possessing Linda Blair. There's... It's graphic because it's you're actually watching physical things being shot and bleeding, and but I think 
those scenes affected me more because there are very realistic pictures of violence. If you've ever seen a street fight or you've seen people having a shootout in the street, which unfortunately I've seen both of, it is just suddenly gunshots are ringing out, everyone's ducking, you don't know what's going on. And there's just, it, it, you're, you can, there was a similar scene, I think, in uh, Fargo where um, the character's wife has been kidnapped and she's watching a man walking up to the, the, the door of her house mm-hmm. and breaking in. And the entire time she doesn't think she's in danger because it's almost like a stage play. Okay. And in a lot of ways, real violence is like that. Suddenly you're just sort of, oh, wait, he just, he has a razor on him. Right. Yes, because yeah, you're seeing something in real life that you're used to watching on a screen. Right. So it Very takes strange. your brain a minute to go, mm-hmm. oh, no, this is like really happening. Right. There's that, and that this film has that same sort of effect where oh god, and then it's going by so quick, and you're not quite sure what's going on, and and again, in not like a unlike a, a movie western, people are being shot and they're adrenalized, so they're dragging their bodies around, they're bleeding everywhere, and it really is, it, it was really very realistic, which is what I, I impresses me about it. I, I see that, but mm-hmm. and and I'm also, I mean, I might just be jaded, mm-hmm. I might just be a jaded viewer. Or violence. We're desensitized to it because yeah. there's been so much violence since then. There's a ton of trivia, but I don't know that any of it, you know, a lot of it is here are all the people that were going to play the parts. I do like the idea of Melanie Griffith almost playing, playing Iris. Iris. And I do, I'm really interested because I never would see anybody different uh, playing Travis. But when you mentioned of all the people that, you know, Warren Beatty and everyone else that you mentioned, yeah, let me get happen. the list. Other actors considered for the role, specifically uh, Martin Scorsese offered it directly to Dustin Hoffman. Mm-hmm. Dustin Hoffman thought Scorsese was a crazy man and turned it down and apparently is regretful. But the other people considered were Jeff Bridges, Jack Nicholson, Warren Beatty, Burt Reynolds, Ryan O'Neill, Peter Fonda, Al Pacino, John Voight, Robert Blake, David Carradine, Robert Blake would have been a thing, <laughs> Richard Dreyfuss, Christopher Walken, James Caan, Roy Scheider, Paul Newman, Marlon Brando, Martin Sheen, Elliot Gould, Alan Alda, and George Hamilton. So, like, every actor that was acting I can't in 1975. Alan Alda and George Hamilton, either of them doing this, but the ones that you mentioned that are intriguing, watching Christopher Walken... Or David Carradine, who both had a great intimate connection with Crazy. Yeah. Or, or Carradine did, and Walken does. It would be interesting watching them do the point where a person just cracks. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, so in that respect, it's like, huh, that would be an interesting alternate casting for that. But, um, no, De Niro, this is one of his parts, one of the ones that he just absolutely plants his flag on. Yeah. So here's a fun Steven Spielberg fact. Mm. You'll like this. Uh, he visited the recording sessions to tell Bernard Herrmann how much he admired his work. Now, mm. Bernard Herrmann passed away hours after completing right. the composer, the, the composition on this film, and um, the film is dedicated to him. So he stopped by to say how much he admired his work, and uh, Herrmann responded, Oh, yeah, then why do you always use John Williams on your films? <laughs> <laughs> oh, snap! That's a good question. <laughs> Bitch, walk away from me. You know how much I need your admiration? If I don't have dollars attached, walk the fuck out. I love that shit. That's awesome. Brown Herman was great at menace. The, you, you're watching Psycho, you're watching Rear Window. He's really good at it's getting It's crazy to me that he did that. the Hitchcock scores, which are string heavy, mm-hmm. I would say. 
And this movie opted to use no strings at all, which is an odd choice for, mm -hmm. especially for a suspense film. Mm -hmm. Like strings are what are what now we're programmed to go. Oh, some shit's gonna go right. down. Dun, right. dun, dun, dun. That was um <laughs> when what's his name James Bernard was doing the Hammer movies. He's like he almost used nothing but strings. And he would do these screeching violins because he said that just gets on people's it nerves. Does. And it freaks them it out. does. It does. It's an unsettling. Herman sound. knew this because he did this for Psycho. Right. Right. The screeching strings. Um, but Bernard Herman, yeah. In this one, what he did, there was a lot of like this sort of. Uh, I mean, there was the jazz composition that you hear in the foreground all the time, which is reminding you of this sort of film noir and you know, night in the city, and then this sort of like swelling drum thing that he's doing. Um, in the background that kind of makes you feel like something's hidden and emerging and hidden and emerging. It's mm -hmm. very strange, but it really sets the mood for the film. And it's been how many days since, you know, we saw it? Three, And four, that theme two. is still just running through my head constantly. Mm -hmm. My God, yeah, it sticks with you. He really, that, that was a great note to end a career and a life on, really, in work. Yeah, so... I can... Uh, so we watched Taxi Driver. I can recommend it. I, 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 if you haven't seen it, mm -hmm. it's definitely, it's, I mean, it's on the lists right. of the greatest American films, the thousand films you be. should see before you die. And it's certainly, mm -hmm. but you, as if you're um, a woman or someone who identifies as maybe non, non male, mm -hmm. do it on a day where you haven't had a lot of microaggressions, maybe have a drink. Before it's, and after, during. It's a, it's a lot of, it, like, it's a lot of assault on femalehood. And also, you know, there are, like I said, and we said, there are slurs against every this is manner a, of person. This is a so, misanthrope. Yes. A very intense sociopath, psychopath, I would imagine. Yeah, I think once you become violent... Right. It, and, a, and a misanthrope, and this is a person who has no But he, he's, and it's interesting because he longs for connection, mm -hmm. but is so off-put by people that... It's not going to happen. There's, yeah. He's incapable of it. And that's what makes him a tragic figure, but at the same time, not so tragic that you can go, I wish I could reach out to him and be his friend. Yeah, and I, I am personally appalled by the fact that he was seen as a hero and then released. But, you know... Uh, there, uh, I I asked you if this was before or after the Bernard Getz. Yes, yeah. the 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 man who vigilanteed all over the subway mm -hmm. in New York. Um, and you said this was before, and which was a little surprising to me. There's also, um, you know, the film Death Wish that Charles Bronson did. Yes, and the, Bruce Willis just redid. Sorry, the first everyone. film was really violent and horrific and intense about a man who becomes a vigilante and apparently horrified Charles Bronson that they kept calling him back to do sequels because this character was a hero and he was trying to play him as a like, psychopath. No, yeah, this guy needs help. And right. and you know this that Travis Bickle was in the hospital in a coma. Mm -hmm. When he woke up, they didn't get him right. help. And they didn't bring a bump on charges, even if you're not going to charge him with the violent murders of the several people that he killed. You might want to get him on, I don't know, possession of a handgun and this, without 
being permitted. This goes to the. And, but he didn't. He didn't lose his job. Right. He didn't like. He didn't lose anything. And to anybody who thinks that in itself is unrealistic. Oh, I don't I think it's recently, unrealistic, which is why it's know, so upsetting to me. Anybody listening, you might find it that way. I recently posted on Facebook something that was sent to me by a person from a martial arts group about a young man who snuck a katana onto what was it, a commuter train. And there were two, he was a young white kid. There were two black men fighting with each other, getting shoving match. He pulls out the katana and threatens to kill them with it. I know that kid. And that kid was up, raised in Clear Lake. Sorry, everyone. And, and he also, up, he is dead because he drowned. Because you know what you can't do? Right. Kill a water with katana. Well, see, what he did is he got news coverage. He got news coverage. And there was a banner at the bottom of the screen. The Age of uh, Honor has returned. And he's pretending, this young white kid who looks like Crispin Glover and is, yes. is pretending to be a samurai. And he's talking about, well, if the guys came at me, I would use this cut and that cut. And he's a self-taught martial artist, which is the most dangerous kind. Yeah, and a katana, like a real katana, mm-hmm. is a killing weapon. Right. It's not a wounding weapon. No, there's nothing you can do. It's it is designed right. to straight up murder your ass and so yeah the fact that it's cool that these mm-hmm. people yeah no it's, and the fact mm. that he got interviewed on the news and they're honoring him is like look what he did he broke up this fight with a deadly weapon i mean that's no less deadly at that range than having a machine gun for god's sakes Mm-mm. and it's horrifying it's horrifying the, the implication yeah know. because you're basically going to end up disemboweling right. somebody disemboweling or something or decapitating somebody that's what the tool was made for so it was when I saw that. And yeah, the, so the it was. Film, I right. was very surprised that the, um, that the resolution of the film was no resolution. Right. That he lost nothing, and he basically, I mean, it was the beginning of the movie again. Mm-hmm. He's just driving his cab. And the final note of the film, that weird kind of, I saw something in the rearview mirror, was Scorsese's indication to you that this is not purged from his system. This no. is just. He's a hero now, but he's not going to be next time. Next time it might be a, com- a presidential candidate. It might be a president. It might be somebody. And the way that we... Or just you know. somebody caught in the crossfire. Right. That's the other thing. He opened fire in a in a place where basically everyone... He's mm-hmm. lucky Iris didn't get shot. Yeah. He's very lucky Iris didn't get shot. I, I don't... You know, she's sitting in a corner cowering. And terrified, like you should be when there's a gunfight going on and you're right. five and a half years old. But, but she, I mean, a ricochet could have taken yeah. her. I mean. Yeah. So, but uh, that having been said, going back to it, yeah, I, I can recommend the film, but you really have to be aware going into it. It's not necessarily a pleasant experience yeah, at all. Yeah, no. It's, it, uh, yeah. So watch it mm-hmm. when you're in a good mood. With reservations that, yes, be prepared. If really strong offensive language bothers you, if <sighs> intense violence, this is not the movie for you. But if you're looking at it the same way that you'd look at maybe some of them, uh, oh, I don't know. It's almost like you're reading Edgar Allan Poe or something, one of these characters who doesn't know how crazy they are. Yeah. Um, that's kind of what this is. Yeah, a very Annabelle Lee situation. very American Gothic kind of thing going yeah. on. It's very disturbing. But anyhow. All right. So do you, I think we might have the same recommendation, yes, which means I'm going to bite your style again. You go first. Oh. So we... Went to the movies this weekend. Um, between going to other things and other doing other stuff, and we saw what I mistakenly thought was John Krasinski's directorial debut. It is not, uh, but it is his latest endeavor, uh, A Quiet Place, 
with uh, said Mr. Krasinski and his wife, Emily Blunt. I don't even really want to talk about it, though, Mm. because the trailers leave out some important information, and I was very grateful that they did. But if you like horror movies, go see this movie. (laughs) That's what I'm going to say. Just, it's very good. But anything that I say is going to... Well, I'll tell you, here's what the the trailer... Well, if you haven't seen it, watch the trailer, because the trailer is actually very well done, too, which is a weird thing to say about trailers these days. There are creatures, we don't know why, but if they hear you, they hunt you. And so this family are just trying to live a very quiet existence and not draw attention to themselves or else violence and death. It is very tense. I was very tense the whole time. I think it benefits from a theatrical experience, partly because he does different sound design with different characters, specifically because one of the children is deaf. So that adds, it allows some realism when they're using sign language to communicate because this family would use sign language to communicate and but the sound design for each of the characters and what they're hearing and what they're experiencing changes and i think that a surround sound system is very is beneficial to the Mm. viewing experience but beyond that go it's only 90 minutes i was going to be bummed about the fact that it was only 90 minutes but i was grateful for the fact that it was 90 minutes because i was tense (laughs) I mentioned this to you at the time that it was, it reminded me in some ways of Henri Georges Clouseau's film, The Wages of Fear, where four men are driving trucks full of nitroglycerin up a bumpy road to put out a fire. And so during that entire passage in that film, you're just sitting there as these men are sweating. You're just like, car right. you're and, holding your breath because right. you think you're going to set off some shit. Mm-mm. Yeah, it, it's, it, it reminded me of that because it has the same experience of being in a perpetual state of suspense. Like yeah. any misstep, and mm-hmm. you learn that early on in the film, any misstep is really, really dangerous. Right. You can't, you know. Yeah, it's not like, oh, oops, mm-hmm. a little thing could happen. It's mm-hmm. like. No. Uh, Everything devastating. has dire, dire consequences, yeah. and it the film every part of the film was really well thought out for the reason why they all know sign language, the reason mm-hmm. uh, or the the world that gets created and the um, the after effects of of this was an invasion. We're never told. We're never tell, told. You pick up on it's. Uh, I think the opening title card is day eighty nine. Mm-hmm. So we're to understand it's eighty nine days since an event. Mm. And then you could pick up at another day later down the line. Um, at time has passed. People make intelligent decisions. They make decisions that are consistent with their characters. Yes, I think so. Um, there's, re- but I, I don't like, usually cry in a horror movie. I cried. I cried. Uh, I think in this, this is, movie, this is a a superior horror movie. But again, and I know that horror is a weird label for people, but it's. The evidence of the kind of thing that a horror movie can be, which is it's telling you something, and it's also putting you there with this family. You mm-hmm. actually care what happens to them. I thought so. I, there have been criti- I mean, it's it's doing very well critically. I've mm-hmm. seen some criticisms that people didn't feel anything for this family, and mm-hmm. I don't know who those people are. I think they're soulless bastards. <laughs> I mean, that's not. 
just soulless. Mm. I don't know about their parental states. Uh, I really, really enjoyed the movie, um, and I'm hoping to go see it again with our other roommate who was unable to come the first yeah. time, um, because I think been, she'll like it, too. There's a trend of really good. We've hit some high notes with this. Things like It Follows or The Witch or one films that are horror films that are still aimed at keeping your intelligence engaged and keeping, you know... Yeah, because some horror movies, I go in and I'm like, oh, right. it's time to turn off my sense of disbelief. Right. Um, and that's fine. I can do that and go into a movie and just be like, it, just going to let it happen. Right. Like, I don't need to think hard and critically about Pacific Rim Uprising. Right. But it was to their credit, they actually made a film that was entertaining on different levels for that, sure. too. Yes. So it wasn't just like, oh, no, you, you can park your you brain. You can, but, but you don't have to. to. But in this case, I felt like there was, yeah, you could do either way. Mm -hmm. Either way for this one, too. I think you could think about it cerebrally or you could just be like you but, could treat it like a popcorn horror movie and be caught up in the story right. and be but either way you'll be caught up yeah I, that's the I effect that it so. has on people watching it in the theater um <laughs> i also think that watching it in a theater with other people right. and getting their palpable the guy behind tension, us who at some point seemed to be praying for the character he was very funny he was great. very funny um, that's the kind of thing that i, I really enjoy about the theater experience is yeah. having all those people there who are Alternately freaking out, and you know, some of my best theater experiences have been when people run out of the film because they're, they're, you know, so funny. It's just too much for them. But yes, I highly recommend it. It's a quiet place. It's a quiet film too. It is until it, it until isn't. It isn't right. <laughs> um, okay, so I think that brings us to the end. Thank you for listening. Sorry for the lateness of last week's episode. I, I vow to do better. Uh, if you missed my recent appearance on Back to the Futurama, I would love for you to check it out. Um, I sat in with Mike and Ben, and we talked about 300 big boys. It's tax season, so it was fitting. Uh, it was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. So check that out, Back to the Futurama podcast at all of your podcast getting locations i guess it's apple podcast not itunes anymore um we are available at apple podcasts also i just got word that we are on stitcher and if you've got a smart speaker we're on the tune in app so if that's how you get your podcasts you can i guess ask alexa to play the latecomers and you'll hear our lovely voices I don't know if that's how any of this works. Um, I'm not sure my voice is lovely, but I'll do my best. <laughs> and if you have questions, concerns, comments, uh, you can email us at latecomerspod at gmail.com. And we're on Twitter at the latecomers, or at latecomerspod. Lemuel's book can be purchased on Amazon at Ceiling Night. Uh, that's S-E-E-L-I-N-G. N-I-G-H-T, two words on Amazon. It's a book of short stories about a man named Cabal and some ghosts. Get it. Uh, <laughs> and I can be reached to see what all I am doing at AmityArmstrong.com. We've got a Facebook group and page. So find us, like us, subscribe, please. Uh, leave us a review if you want. You know you want to. You love to do those you reviews. Really do. You really want you love to. it so much. All right. Thank you so much for listening. Oh, next week 
I'm taking the reins, and we are mm. watching Clueless. Because there's been too much murder and That's profanity. Right. <laughs> We're going to get some vibrant-ass colors up in here, and your brain is going to hurt at the end of it. It's, I'm very I, excited I, about I, it. I think my eyes are going to hurt first, but yeah, okay. So, Clueless next week. Hopefully it's streaming somewhere. I have not done that research. Um, and we thank you so much for listening. And remember, better late than never. On you. She's coming. She's coming.